Hello, this is Dr. Julie Parsons from the Children's Hospital Colorado in Denver, Colorado. Welcome to this educational activity on spinal muscular atrophy, focusing on the role of gene transfer therapy. Today, we will review clinical data for disease-modifying therapies for SMA and how to apply that evidence in your clinical practice. We'll also talk about spinal muscular atrophy management considerations in patients treated with disease-modifying therapies. And we'll hear from the parents of a child who was treated within weeks of her birth with gene therapy. Let's get started. Spinal muscular atrophy is an autosomal recessive disorder that affects the motor neurons whose cell bodies live in the spinal cord. The incidence of spinal muscular atrophy is about 1 in 6,000 to 1 in 11,000 live births in the United States with a carrier frequency of about 1 in 40 to 1 in 60, which is uh, very similar to that of cystic fibrosis. Spinal muscular atrophy results from SMN or survival motor neuron protein deficiency. The SMN protein can be produced by two genes, SMN1 and SMN2. When patients are missing the SMN1 gene, they don't produce any SMN protein and rely solely on the backup gene or the SMN2 gene. SMN protein is essential to maintain the health of the motor neuron. And without this protein, the motor nerve deteriorates and subsequently muscles weaken and atrophy. The SMN2 gene produces only about 10% of functional SMN protein. Spinal muscular atrophy was historically classified based on the age of diagnosis and the maximum uh, level of motor skill that was achieved. We've altered this classification a bit in the last years and now talk about babies who are non-sitters or sitters or walkers. The age of onset of diagnosis still holds fairly true in that the most severe phenotype or the type 1 patients uh, are typically diagnosed less than six months of age because of symptoms while the ambulatory patients or walkers are diagnosed more than 18 months of age and some actually into adulthood. It's very important to understand that the SMN2 copy number or the SMN2 gene contribution really affects the phenotype and there is a correlation between copy numbers as well as functional abilities in spinal muscular atrophy patients. So for instance, the type 1 patients or the most severe phenotypes typically will have just two copies of SMN2, while the ambulatory patients will have three or four copies of SMN2. Certainly, the copy number uh, and the amount of SMN protein also correlates with functional abilities with these patients and their achievement of uh, milestones and lifespans. So for instance, prior to having disease-modifying therapies, type 1 patients might be diagnosed at birth or again under 6 months of age, and 95% of them would die uh, prior to 2 years of age. While the patients who had more uh, SMN protein or higher copy numbers, for instance the ambulatory patients, uh, would uh, certainly achieve and gain skills to a certain point and then begin to 
lose function over time. So the trajectory of SMA is dependent on the phenotype and SMN2 copy numbers. Prior to having disease-modifying therapies, we had supportive care, and which we still have. We still have supportive care. Um, there have been two care consensus guidelines published uh, in terms of how to provide comprehensive multidisciplinary care for patients with spinal muscular atrophy, the most recent guidelines being published in 2018. Uh, our first disease-modifying therapy was FDA-approved very late in 2016. But prior to that time, we really did look at supportive care such as non-invasive ventilation, tracheostomy, gastrostomy tubes for enteral nutrition, bracing or surgery for scoliosis, and use of a variety of mobility aids such as uh, splints and walkers and wheelchairs. There are currently three FDA-approved disease-modifying therapies for spinal muscular atrophy, nusinersen, onisemnogene abaparvovec, and rizdaplam. We'll get a little bit more into the specifics a bit later. It's very, very important, uh, according to all of the clinical trials that have been uh, done, with strong evidence supporting initiation of treatment with disease-modifying therapies as early as possible when a patient is diagnosed with SMA. Optimally, this would occur before there is symptom uh, onset or uh, more loss of motor neurons to maximize the patient outcomes. And we do know that based on animal studies that in the most severe phenotypes such as SMA1, that about 50% of motor neurons are lost prior to uh, birth. This has led us to a newborn screening program. SMA was added to the recommended uniform screening panel for newborns in 2018, and happily, 39 states to date have initiated newborn screening programs in their states, which allows us to identify and cover about 86% of newborns born in the U.S. It's extremely important to remember that this screening will not diagnose 100% of patients with SMA, just 95% of patients. So if there is a clinical suspicion of spinal muscular atrophy, additional workup is warranted to identify those additional 5% of patients. So what kinds of symptoms and signs do we look for when we're looking for a patient with spinal muscular atrophy? In infants, we uh, they typically will present with hypotonia. They have progressive, symmetric, proximal muscle weakness that affects legs more than arms. They aren't really able to kick uh, off of a table when they're lying down. Um, it spares facial muscles, but often there is bulbar muscle weakness, so feeding and breathing is affected as well. There's weakness of the intercostal muscles with sparing of the diaphragm. So babies will typically have a bell-shaped chest with a paradoxical breathing pattern or quote-unquote abdominal breathing because of that sparing of the diaphragm. In younger children or latency-age children, we look at, again, proximal weakness, hypotonia. Um, the bulbar and respiratory findings are initially a little bit less prominent. There are diagnostic algorithms for testing for spinal muscular atrophy. And so if there's a clinical suspicion of SMA, or certainly with the newborn screening, 
Uh, initially, the testing will look for that deletion of, of the SMN1 protein. And then we do feel that it's extremely important to get copy numbers of SMN2, which will help us to identify the phenotype and go forward with, uh, with treatment. Again, spinal muscular atrophy was classified historically based on genotype and how severe the symptoms are, but now we look more at the functional status of the non-sitters, sitters, and walkers. And then we have to factor in now the treatment response, where either there's a continued decline, there's no change, or there's improvement. Currently, there are three FDA-approved disease-modifying therapies for spinal muscular atrophy. The first drug approved was nusinersen in December of 2016. This is administered intrathecally. There are four loading doses given on days 1, 15, 30, and 60, and then nusinersen is delivered quarterly for life. The indication is for all patients, pediatric and adult patients, with 5Q SMA. Nusinersen works as a uh, modifier of the SMN2 splicing. The next drug that was approved is onisemnagene abaparvavac. And the strategy is a little bit different for onisemnagene. Onisemnagene is an uh, intravenous one-time uh, therapy that uh, works on replacing the SMN1 gene by a transgene in the motor neuron cells. This is carried by an uh, adeno-associated viral vector that is trophic for motor neurons specifically. But onisemnagene is only indicated for patients under the age of two years. Ristaplam was most recently approved in 2020. This also works on SMN2 alternative splicing and is given as a daily oral uh, medication. The indication currently for Ristaplam is for treatment of SMA in patients who are more than two months of age, although there's a pre-symptomatic trial in place and it may be that the indication will be changed in the future. As we talked about, the mechanisms of the SMN-directed therapies are a little bit different. So nusinersen is an antisense oligonucleotide that uh, incorporates the exon 7 into the pre-messenger RNA, um, therefore producing more functional protein. Ristaplam also works with a splicing modifier to increase the amount of SMN protein. And as mentioned, onisemnagene works using an AAV9 vector that it, uh, institutes a transgene into the motor neurons with hopefully a durable uh, production of the SMN protein over time. So how does one choose a disease-modifying therapy? Which DMT for which patient? So really we have no head-to-head -head trials comparing them directly. Um, the most prominent determinant right now uh, of dosing is, is age. So nusinersen, as I said, is indicated for all age patients with SMA. Onisemnagene is indicated only for patients less than two years of age, and Ristaplam currently is indicated only for patients more than two months of age. We have other considerations to include, including, for instance, uh, for nusinersen, which is given intrathecally, 
how much difficulty is there with scoliosis, with spinal fusion, um, with, uh, for instance, a, a patient who has had a spinal fusion with rods, is that a problem in terms of delivering an intrathecal medication? If a patient has liver or kidney disease, then that will influence which drug is given. Uh, onisemnogene tends to be uh, hard on the liver. There's a, a immune response that we see that can be significant. Um, and uh, we are not able to give omnisemnogene in patients who have an elevated AAV9 antibody titer. And so there's some patients who will need treatment with nusinersen or ristaplam as an alternative. And then if a patient has thrombocytopenia, um, they would not be treated with onisemnogene. That's one of the uh, adverse events that we see in that, uh, with use of that medication. So is there a rationale for gene replacement therapy um, in patients with SMA? And, and this is an important concept to have, is that um, with gene transfer therapy, that we're providing a functional copy of the human SMN gene directly into the motor neuron to address the genetic root cause of the disorder. So it does, onisemnogene does increase the functional protein in motor neurons, um, which prevents the cell death and halts disease progression. Um, as noted, onisemnogene uses an adeno-associated viral vector. Um, the viral vector does not cause disease in humans. Um, the AAV9 serotype does cross the blood-brain barrier, so it targets cells in uh, the uh, central nervous system as well as the motor neurons. Um, and as you know, motor neurons do not divide um, and they live for long extended periods of time. So the concept is that a single administration may permit continual transgene expression in spinal muscular atrophy. Again, AV9 is not associated with pathogenicity in humans, um, but there are tr elevations of transaminases uh, after administration, thrombocytopenia, some other uh, issues that have to be uh, looked at. The STRIVE trial for onisemnogene was an open-label, single-arm, multi-center trial for babies under six months of age who had symptoms. The babies needed to be able to swallow non-thickened liquids. So they were given onisemnogene and followed in terms of their motor skills. On the CHOP Intend, which was a motor assessment tool designed specifically for uh, weak babies with SMA, there was an increase of almost seven points after a month. And after 14 months, there was an increase of 23 points. And again, remembering that initial trajectory for patients with SMN, or for, sorry, with, for type one uh, SMA who would have a rapid decline after diagnosis, this is unheard of. Um, the primary endpoint of event-free survival, 91% of those babies were alive and free for permanent ventilation at the 14-month uh, age. And babies were able to sit more than 30 seconds at 18 months, about 59% of them. And recall that in the natural history for type 1 SMA babies, uh, they're non-sitters. They never have the ability to sit. There was a STRIVE uh, study done in the European Union 
as well. And in data that was presented most recently in June of 2021, uh, there were 32 of 33 patients completed the study. 44% achieved the endpoint of sitting independently more than 10 seconds uh, at any visit up to 18 months, and 97% survived without permanent ventilation. There were no new safety signals, um, and it's of note that uh, some of the patients in the EU had more severe disease at presentation than those for the STRIVE study in the U.S. Again, these are remarkable uh, outcomes. There was also a study that was done called the SPRINT study, and that study was done in babies who were pre-symptomatic. The babies were uh, treated under six weeks of age, and uh, the babies were fairly evenly divided. About 14 had two copies of SMN2, 15 had three copies of SMN2. And these babies were followed looking at their outcomes uh, and are continued to be followed at this time. So there were differences depending on whether the baby had two or three copies in terms of their outcome. But for the primary endpoint, um, we were looking at independent sitting and for the three copy babies, independent standing, um, and then looking as well at, at breathing, uh, attainment of milestones, and weight gain. With the outcome results looked at in 2019, um, there were uh, eight out of 14 babies were sitting independently, four out of 14 were walking independently, uh, and there were all the babies who gained more than 50 points on the chop and tend with the two copy babies. The uh, three copy babies uh, performed a bit better so in the data that was presented at the uh, European uh, uh, Congress in 2021, 100% uh, of these babies met the primary endpoint of sitting independently more than 30 seconds. Almost 80% reached the milestone at a normal developmental age. Again, amazing. About 80% could stand independently and 64% could walk independently. 100% of them had no ventilatory support at 14 months of age. And nearly all of them met the additional secondary endpoint of weight maintenance without uh, G-tube or uh, enteral feeds. All patients experienced at least one adverse event after dosing, but there were none that were serious treatment-related adverse events. There is data now that is being collected uh, through a variety of sites for uh, looking at what's happening in the real world. So we have wonderful pharma studies for small numbers of patients, but individual sites and individual groups are beginning to report on outcomes based on their sites. And these uh, reports are uh, reporting five, six, ten patients in terms of what's happened. Again, they're not standardized. It's a little bit more difficult to make um, global conclusions, but I think it's important that we begin to look at the real-world data now. In terms of deciding which disease-modifying therapy to use, uh, the model of shared decision-making is very important. Again, we don't have head-to-head -head trials. All we can do is to share the data that we have with uh, patients and families so that they can make an informed choice about which disease-modifying therapy to use. Uh, 
So clinicians, patients, caregivers, all have a variety of considerations that they weigh when making treatment decisions. Um, individual health status, experiences, goals for the patient and family influence what they understand to be meaningful changes or what their benefits are and what the acceptable risks are from a therapeutic agent. We always have to come back to um, having realistic expectations for all of us and to review those expectations with the main goal being uh, to maintain a level of function in these patients because this is a neurodegenerative disorder and we would expect decline over time. If we have more benefit than that, we're always absolutely thrilled. There are some practical challenges related to treatment and follow-up. For instance, how close are they to an SMA treatment center? Um, do they have the ability to uh, follow up closely with the therapy that is given? So lots of factors uh, that we look at in making a choice. So to provide the family and caregiver perspective on receiving and responding to an SMA diagnosis, we're going to hear from Aaron and Jason, who are parents of a baby with spinal muscular atrophy. Um, yes, yeah, so her, her pediatrician called and let us know that what popped up on her newborn screening was the SMA. So I was first confused and then trying to figure out the severity of the diagnosis, because obviously we're not doctors and we've never heard of this because we, you know, she was a perfectly healthy baby and we were having a really awesome day. So to hear that news, I guess, shocking. And then that led to devastation once we found out, you know, what it was. The most helpful thing for us, well, for me specifically, was they told us not to go online and don't Google stuff. Yeah. Because once you Google stuff, it's all pretty negative. So wait until you talk to the doctors. That, that was the most useful thing for me, yeah. being or patient and waiting for our appointment. The way they explained it to us is that the risks are lower, um, you know, upfront and ongoing with the spinal tap one, um, just with, you know, headache, those kind of things that come along with any spinal tap that could happen. Um, but the risks for the gene transfer in, could have been more severe upfront. Thankfully, she never experienced any of those. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the main reason why we chose the gene therapy, because that was a one-time thing, and then we could move on with her progression. And that was a lot of what the staff at Children's talked to us about, is that it's whatever best fits our family and whatever we're most comfortable with. There have been some surveys that have been done looking at how patients and caregivers uh, look at choices of medications what kind of values they place on, uh, for instance, improvement in motor function or breathing function, um, the route of administration, and what the potential harm is. Um, CureSMA recruited over 100 patients uh, to do a survey to look at uh, some of their choices and results. And again, I think it's important to take this into consideration and to have a good working relationship with your patient and family to be able to understand uh, what their values are in terms of treatment. So how do we manage patients who are treated with gene transfer therapy? There are adverse events associated with onisemnogene. The most common adverse reactions are elevated transaminases and vomiting. Uh, on the label, there is a warning about acute serious liver injury and elevated aminotransaminases. Um, 
and we do need to continue to monitor the liver function very closely for at least three months after infusion. Uh, all patients are delivered corticosteroids uh, the day prior to infusion and after infusion uh, as their laboratory studies uh, normalize we then begin to taper the steroids off um, over time. There was also more recently uh, a adverse event of uh, thrombocytopenia and thrombotic microangiopathy. So there is a series of uh, lab tests that we look at um, post-dosing for these patients. So we recommend that looking at liver function, that at baseline, Besides a clinical examination, that there's uh, AST, ALT, total bilirubin, and prothrombin time. This is reassessed weekly over the first month, and in months two and three, assessed every two weeks until the results uh, return to being unremarkable. Um, in general, patients uh, will have an elevation in transaminases. The serious liver injuries tend to occur or between six and eight weeks. Troponin eye levels are monitored as well, looked at at baseline, measured weekly for the first month, and monthly uh, thereafter until they return to baseline. Platelet counts are looked at for the thrombocytopenia, measured at baseline, weekly for the first month, and month two and three, uh, measured every couple of weeks until return to baseline. Um, the uh, TMA diagnosis has tended to occur uh, early within the first week or two after treatment with onisemnogene. The multidisciplinary care center and care considerations uh, make a huge difference in terms of treating patients with spinal muscular atrophy, and this hasn't changed uh, even with uh, the wonderful disease-modifying therapies that we have available. So SMA requires extensive multidisciplinary care. Typically, it's coordinated by the patient's neurologist. We have trained examiners, physical therapists, or physiatrists to assess strength, the range of joint motion, function, at uh, typically six-month intervals, although sometimes more frequently. Um, and we're very proactive with physical therapy care to help influence the trajectory of progression. So the goals of rehab and all the interventions we use are really individualized for each patient. As we are treating patients now with disease-modifying therapies, we don't have a natural history anymore to go on, so we really need to examine patients and to look at them proactively and comprehensively uh, to help us understand new phenotypes and what new issues are coming up that we need to address. So for long-term follow-up, it's always important prior to therapy to counsel families regarding the importance of long-term multidisciplinary care. Even when the patients appear to have minimum symptoms, we really need to have their partnership prior to treating them to make certain that we do have the ability to follow patients over the long term. We encourage participation in registries that really can provide a lot of insight on long-term durability and safety of treatment Spinal muscular atrophy is still a rare disorder, so we need to have national and international cooperation in these regards. There may be uh, interventions regarding respiratory care, 
rehabilitative therapies, orthopedic management, nutritional management, um, all of which are important contributions to the health and uh, well-being of our SMA patients. Let's hear again from Erin and Jason, who reflect on how they and their daughter are doing nearly a year after she received gene transfer therapy. Yeah, so her follow-up um, with children's was once a week for a little while um, with the blood draws and all of that, just to monitor how um, all of her, like her liver and her heart and all those things were doing after the gene transfer. And then um, it went on to every two weeks and then I think every month. And then now we are currently on a three-month follow-up, but they said that they'd probably move us to every six months because she's doing so well. There's no guarantee of what will happen. Um, but from what her early days looked like and the fact that she was treated at 19 days of life and all of that stuff, um, they have said that her prognosis looks very good um, and comparable to other kids that they've seen kind of walking and running around their clinic when they come in is what they say that their hopes are for that. Um, and then whenever her physical therapist met with her, she said that, you know, all of her strength, all of her coordination, all of those look like a typical kid. I think um, one of the most important things that we have done is not associated her life with SMA. <laughs> and we have that luxury because of the newborn screening and the early intervention and she's doing so well, um, but not making her entire life um, about her having SMA, just letting her be herself and being happy for the things that she does do when she does them, all of that. Um, she pretty much said what I would say, just being patient and taking it day by day and not really letting her life be defined by SMA is a really big thing and comparing her to herself and not really anyone else. It's just yeah. being really happy with her achievements as they come. Every time we go in, we have to fill out a survey, a, a, like a quality of life survey mm -hmm. type thing for that study, which basically just asks if she's like too tired or in too much pain to do typical things. And we haven't had to say yes to anything yet. So that's exciting. So what do we look at in the future? Well, current studies are exploring expanding use of gene replacement therapy to patients at older ages and stages of progression. Another area of research is the combination or potential combination for uh, therapies, including nusinersen and onisemnogene. There were two trials uh, using intrathecal onisemnogene that uh, are being explored and undertaken uh, to see if we can have positive outcomes uh, in older patients who uh, are not able to um, tolerate the increased viral vector load of uh, onisemnogene given intravenously. And then combination therapies is something that patients and providers ask about. Uh, they're are a couple of, again, site-specific uh, reports of patients who've been treated with two agents. Um, and uh, there are some promising results, but again, small numbers and single-center reports about these therapies. Uh, there is a trial that is being done uh, looking at uh, patients who have initially been treated with onisemnogene followed by nusinersen, uh, and that study is currently enrolling, so we should have some data from that one eventually as well. 
Um, we have to look at real-world experience uh, with these combination therapies and collect these small numbers of patients who are treated to see whether or not there is benefit to monotherapy versus combination therapy um, in SMA patients and to see whether or not uh, these uh, combinations are safe. So what are the key takeaways? Spinal muscular atrophy is a progressive autosomal recessive genetic disorder which results from the loss of SMN1 function and deficiency of SMN protein. Spinal muscular atrophy severity varies and is influenced by the number of SMN2 gene copies. Disease modifying therapies that have been shown to improve outcomes are available. These include nusinersen, onisemnogene abaparvovac, and rizdaplam. Newborn screening facilitates earlier intervention, but it's not universal still in the United States and still may miss some patients with spinal muscular atrophy, including those 5% that are not identified on newborn screening. Multidisciplinary management that includes ongoing monitoring and supportive care remain essential in optimizing outcomes even in patients treated with disease-modifying therapies. This concludes our discussion for today. I hope you found the activity informative and useful for your practice and encourage you to participate in future activities. Thank you very much. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education.